Hello, dear people, and welcome to the fourth edition of ReporterCast for September 2022. My name is Mate Roska, the journalist hosting the podcast. We have with us today a legend of international banking, wealth management, law enforcement, and campaigning against corporate crime. He has made his name as the man who single-handedly tore down the centuries-old tradition of Swiss banking secrecy and arguably brought about a fundamental change in the way the rich, famous, and infamous of the globalized economy conduct their financial affairs anywhere on earth. It's arguably thanks to him personally that it's now impossible to get an anonymous numbered bank account in Switzerland and beyond. And not only that, but due to his exploits, this man was jailed. He admitted to certain economic crimes, but he was also given over $100 million as a reward by the same U.S. government, which put him in prison. There's American justice for you. It should be clear by now that our guest's name is Bradley Birkenfeld, who is also the author of an autobiography called Lucifer's Bunker. Thanks for coming on the show, Brad. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, just to clarify, I only admitted to a one count of tax conspiracy, which is a really quite a bogus charge, and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world but in America. So you can see how corrupt the justice system is in America. But just to clarify it, it was just a one count charge of ta- to commit tax conspiracy. One count, one count. Fair enough. And uh, before I get into the questions, I would also like to thank our advertisers at H5 Strategies in Bucharest, an executive and political consultancy group specialized in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Africa. Now, uh, Brad, please, for the people who have yet to read your book, tell us a bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you became a banker, and how you ended up with UBS. Certainly. Well, um, I'm an American. I grew up in the Boston area of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, for your audience who uh, may or may not know where that city is. And I was the youngest of three boys in a family where my father was a neurosurgeon and my mom was a housewife. And I had a good education in the Boston area, went to a private school, high school. And then I went on to a private, the oldest private military school in America called Norwich University, where ROTC was founded, where you can pretty much go into any branch of the military and become an officer, but also get a degree in whatever your major is at the time. And my major was economics. So what I did was after school, I had spent a semester in London as an economics major. Then I came back to America and I worked in a bank that I'd worked in summers, State Street Bank, as a currency trader. Uh, that was a great experience. I dealt in worldwide currencies. This is long before the euro, back in 1989, and really enjoyed the experience of understanding global markets and being immersed with uh, very intellectual people, uh, people with MBAs and CFAs and PhDs and so forth. I think it's critical for people to understand that you know when you're young, you're eager to learn. And at that time, the world markets were still developing in a certain extent because we were um, multi-currency and uh, multilingual and so forth. But you had a system in which um, cross-border trading and so forth was critical, and uh, it was facilitated through foreign exchange. Anyways, I had left America and then went to Switzerland after four years in America to get my master's in finance. And while I was in Switzerland, I was hired by Credit Suisse Private Banking in Geneva. And then from Credit Suisse Private Banking, after a few years, my boss had left. I was recruited by my next boss to Barclays Bank in Geneva. And after several years there, I was headhunted from a a very large um, 
executive headhunting firm in London to go from Barclays to UBS, where I was a director of the bank and was the head of business development for uh, all of North America, Canada, and the U.S., so I had quite an interesting experience and really enjoyed my time in Switzerland, not just academically, but professionally, and, uh, and made a very good career until uh, I started blowing the whistle on the illegalities uh, committed not only by UBS, but all the Swiss banks. Well, that's very interesting. And um, just to give our younger um, listeners a, a flavor, um, nowadays everybody talks about uh, due diligence, tax avoidance, uh, you know, the, the, uh, making sure everything is uh, uh, legitimate. But back then, um, things were done on a handshake and the, and the wink, and um, uh, maybe not every uh, every bank was careful to, to, um, to obey every rule. Is that correct? And uh, could, could, you, could you give us a bit of, a, of an anecdote of, of how deals were done back then? It, it's important for your audience to understand the history behind Swiss bank secrecy. And Swiss bank secrecy actually has a place. Unfortunately, uh, it was abused and taken advantage of. So just for the hist historical standpoint, uh, when the Third Reich under Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, they had ordered anyone who moved money outside the country, um, uh, Reichsmarks, Deutschmarks, and so forth, would have been shot, would have been killed. Why? That was to keep money for the new upcoming war effort, which was World War II. So you can understand the mentality behind that. You don't have to agree with it, but it was quite severe. The Swiss took an opposite approach. In 1934, Article 47 in their constitution clearly states, if anyone opens an account in Switzerland, you would be anonymous in a numbered account, and we will never, repeat, never disclose that. So you can understand why it came about because of this Nazi uh, Third Reich aggressiveness. It's very important to understand the historical perspective and significance. Okay. But through the years, that secrecy, just like you have medical privilege, you have legal privilege, you have clergy privilege, you have bank privilege, which made sense. Unfortunately, it was abused, as we know. So then what happened was nefarious and illegal acts were uh, facilitated through Switzerland, through bank accounts, companies, foundations, trusts, and so forth. So what happened is, essentially, you had all these different kinds of illegal crimes from bribery, extortion, insider trading, tax evasion, and so on and so forth. Now, tax evasion is not considered a crime in Switzerland. Uh, I worked in Switzerland. I had a work contract in Switzerland. I had my residency in Switzerland. So I followed the laws of Switzerland perfectly. The issue comes down to is what we could do when we left Switzerland. Now, if you go to Saudi Arabia, they don't have taxes. So tax evasion is not an issue. But we weren't going to Saudi Arabia in particular. We were going to North America, which does have very stringent tax laws on income tax, capital gains tax, and inheritance tax. So that's really where your audience has to sort of understand the complexity here of every country has different tax laws, and it just depends how you treat them. But within Switzerland, those laws did not exist. Tax evasion was not a crime. It was not considered a crime. So if a Swiss, if you and I were working in Switzerland and we made our salary and paid our tax, we could then walk in the bank, put in the money, and never make tax on it again, legally. So it's just important to understand that. Not everyone was uh, you know, a drug dealer or arms uh, smuggler or human trafficking or insider trader or something like this. 
Did that exist? Yes, it did. And it, it existed in many other places where you've heard many stories about this. But I think it's important to understand that there was 140 banks in Geneva when I left in 2008. And today there's around 70. So around, give or take, 80 or 90 have vanished or merged or gone out of business. So I think it's important to understand that as well, because what had happened was the U.S. government failed, repeat, failed to ever do their job. They're such a big law enforcement body. They argue how tough they are, how much they have in their budgets and law enforcement officials. But why wouldn't you have ever uncovered this international tax scandal? The largest and longest running in history, period. The problem was, and it's quite clear to you and your audience, they didn't want to uncover it. Why? Because just at UBS, I uncovered 19,000 millionaires and billionaires who were evading income tax, capital gains tax, and inheritance tax. They were cheating the tax man, were probably hiding it from a spouse, and maybe a business partner. So you can see this was really a vehicle for people to uh, put a nest egg, fine, diversify their assets, okay, multi-currency, great, but you can't go around and think that you can use this as a vehicle to break the law, and that's what they were doing. And um, at some point, you just decided you um, you can't uh, you, you can't accept this anymore, and uh, you uh, you copied a load of files. There's, there's a there's a scene in the book where you you describe spending all night copying and sort of diligently putting together spreadsheets and so forth. And then, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you you travel first to Boston. And then you approach the Department of Justice. Could you take us through that a little bit and first uh, and, and first start with, with the thinking uh, that triggered the whistleblowing? Well, again, I was a director of the bank. I managed a large amount of money for clients, around $450 million. And I traveled quite frequently to America uh, to see existing clients and get potential clients. The problem was, was when a colleague approached me within the office and showed me a three-page document, which is in my book, Lucifer's Banker, uh, and on my website, lucifersbanker.com, that clearly shows that they had slipped in a three-page memo without telling us about it and without training us on this document. Now, as a director and, and several other directors within the firm, um, they had not heard of this either. So it was really the bank secretly putting it in our intranet, the internal computer system, without telling us or training us. So what does that mean? Well, the document speaks for itself. It contradicts everything we were doing. It says you can't open new accounts with clients in the U.S. You can't give them investment advice. You can't um, give them marketing materials. But they were paying us to do this. That's exactly what they were doing, uh, telling us to do. So I, I realized immediately that this was a very, very dangerous situation. Why? One, that they lied to me and my colleagues but they also lied to the clients and the shareholders. And this is very, very serious because this wasn't my bank. This wasn't my memorandums. This was theirs. And when I approached them on this, they were very, they were in denial. They, they had a legal and compliance. I wrote to them personally as a director. They never answered me, not once, but twice, but three times. So after the second time, that's when I started. I didn't steal the documents. I took documents that were given to me, which makes them my property. And I, I took them home. And I wanted to make sure I had files that would support everything I was saying. 
because you can say whatever you want. You know, I, I had dinner with God last night. Well, do you have a menu or do you have a document that shows you were sitting with God at dinner? I mean, I'm, I'm, I say that in jest, but you see what I'm saying is that if you don't have documents to support what you say, it's very, very easy to attack someone and criticize them as just, you know, um, uh, angry or bitter or what have you. So anyways, I had all of this and I knew it was the only way to make sure that uh, the story could be told properly and truthfully. So at that point, um, I quit the bank. Um, they wouldn't give me an answer to the three-page document of cross-border business. So I said, I will get an answer whether you like it or not. And then I'm on something called gardening leave. Gardening leave uh, for most European banks is where you get paid six months of your full salary, but you just don't go to work. That's so you don't cannibalize your clients, meaning take them to a new bank or what have you. And the bank wants to sort of protect those assets. Understandable. But I was still an employee, but full salary, but I just stayed home or went on vacation or what have you. So I sent my complaint to the board of directors of UBS in Zurich. Well, my legal and compliance department won't answer me. I'll go right to the top. So I sent my certified mail to every member. I said, now it's your problem. And that's the best. Why? Because the legal liability of a bank is if you knowingly break the law, your directors and officers insurance does not cover you. Well, they called an investigation. They asked for my help. Ironically, they need my help to tell them how they're breaking the law. So I brought my attorney and we met with them. Um, but I found out two, two and a half weeks later from my former colleagues, you know, I met them privately and they, they covered it up again. They covered up the whole investigation. So this wasn't about an investigation. This was about a way to cover themselves so they could get away with it. This was blatant. This is knowingly uh criminal conduct so i said okay now i will i will checkmate you so i went to the u.s i thought my own government would, would accept me but what i found out later was they were very hostile towards me the first reason is you have incompetent civil service at the department of justice that's the first thing i mean really incompetent people and i can if anyone reads my book and it's in romanian as well english german french italians uh, japanese greek russian and you can read it Secondly, how is it that all these years, for the last 50 years, let's say, the U.S. government never penetrated Swiss bank secrecy? Why? You can go into wars and spend billions of dollars. You can fly to the moon. You can go under the sea. But you can't find out what's going on in Switzerland, really. Interesting. Okay. So one courageous whistleblower, Brad Birkenfeld, comes in and gives them the mother load. And they attack me. And the only banker to go to jail in the financial crisis was me. Why? Because they didn't want to expose all their rich millionaire and billionaire friends, CEOs, politicians, Hollywood actors and actresses, because it's incestuous. This was across the board. The rich and powerful elite were keeping offshore money to the detriment of the taxpayers. So this was really the problem that the powerful people in America who were that rich to open a Swiss bank account were angry with me. The Department of Justice was angry with me. The State Department was angry with me. The Treasury Department was angry with me. The IRS was angry with me. The White House was angry with me, as well as the Swiss government and all the Swiss banks. So I was really a man without a country. Let's be frank. And nobody wanted to support, oh, that's the guy who got indicted. That's the bad guy. And, okay, and sure. so... And, um... So you went, you went to America with the documents, you went to the Department of Justice, 
and uh, they do they weren't really that interested the next thing you knew there was this guy kevin downing who wanted to put you away can you tell us a bit about that well it, it wasn't they weren't interested they were hostile towards me i mean they really felt as though they said you're not a whistleblower i said well, it's not up to you to decide if you call me a, a giraffe that doesn't make me a giraffe you know but you can see the hostility between someone like myself who's fairly well educated and well traveled and so forth and really useless and incompetent civil service who sit in Washington. So Kevin Downing and his, his cohorts there really were embarrassed because I essentially were saying, why haven't you done this? Why do I have to knock on your door, fly from Geneva to Boston, Boston to Washington to tell you about the big, the biggest, the largest and longest running tax scandal in the world. So you can see there was, there was a real problem here. And I realized right then and there, this was going to be a big, big problem. Um, but fine, you know, I'm a big boy, can handle it. But the point is, it just shows you, if this is the kind of thing you're going to show them, what else are they screwing up in law enforcement? And sadly, it's extensive. And your show is not long enough to talk about all of them. But it was hostile. It was their incompetence. They didn't uncover it. They didn't want to uncover it. Even when I was there talking about it, they were uh, very aggressive towards me. So I said, what am I doing here? So I pretty much kicked my attorneys under the table. I said, get me out of here. I, I don't want to deal with these idiots. Ultimately, it came down to a very simple thing. There's two things in America under the legal system you can get. One is immunity and one is a subpoena. Immunity gives you immunity so you can't be prosecuted. A subpoena forces you from a government standpoint to testify about the truth, which I told them about the truth. I was coming to them. They didn't come to me. I went to them. And they wouldn't give me either of them. They said, no, we're not going to give it to you. They said, you're not getting the names. So, well, we want the names. I said, I want a subpoena. They said, we won't give you this. Well, sorry, not going to give it here because I'm in jeopardy in Switzerland. I have no protection. And that's where I lived at the time. So I left there and went to the U.S. Senate and got a subpoena from the U.S. Senate which was at the time democratically controlled, and this was a Republican DOJ. Ultimately, what happened was they were so furious because then I went to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Internal Revenue Service, and the U.S. Senate, and testified for hours upon hours with documents and documents and documents. So in essence, I gave them the keys to the kingdom, and they loved it, but DOJ hated it once again. Why? They couldn't take... Uh, credit for this. They didn't do their job. They hate whistleblowers. And they didn't like the way I was talking to them. Like, you know, I, I pretty much said, you guys are really stupid. You, Why are you even working here? I wouldn't well, trust if you. you. Said that, if you said that, then you can imagine how they might, uh, they might have got a bit... Um... A, a, a bit offended, but um, you know, never mind. Never mind all of that. Can we put also one question to bed that um, that I, I, I just uh, that I just uh, had on my mind? Did you ever uh, in your two years in prison? Did you ever join a gang or get any prison tattoos? No, no. This for for your audience. This wasn't a real prison. This is called a camp, and a camp means no fence, no prison cells. It was just bunk beds. It's almost like a you know, a, a sort of a reform school, if you will. You know, I was playing tennis every day, lifting weights. I was jogging and so forth, staying in shape, reading a lot, helping other inmates with their cases. So there was nothing like that. It, this was really a very simplistic place to be in which, sure, they took my liberty away, but I spent all the time giving foreign interviews. People would come from all over the world to interview me. Um, and I helped other inmates with their uh, injustices that I saw. I witnessed them. 
And I thought that was important to do. So, and I started the the framework of my book, which I did publish once I got out of prison, and uh, and it was it was it's highly successful. It's in eight languages. Uh, fantastic. And um, then uh, came the vindication. Basically, uh, all the press coverage vindicated uh, vindicated you, and all the fines, all the recovery orders. It was endless, really. So um, then there was the award. And could you say for the record how, how much the award was and how much you had to pay in tax? And um, um, yeah, yeah. Let, let's, let's do that. Well, the nice thing about this award was it was the very first IRS whistleblowing award. That was the first one and the largest one. It was $104 million and I paid around $35 million in tax. So give or take, I uh, took away $75 million uh, net. And the interesting thing about that is, is that uh, not only was this a vindication, but it shows you that the information I gave was unprecedented, historic. And ultimately, um, three weeks later, I got a FedEx from London uh, in America, and they put me in the Guinness Book of World Records. So <laughs> they had to create a new category for me. So I was quite, uh, I was quite proud. Oh, of that's that. very interesting. Very interesting. And can we can we put another thing to bed? And this time I'm not joking. But um, uh, did you know there was going to be an award at the end of this when when you started on the journey of um, of exposing UBS and exposing Swiss banking? No, I didn't. And, and and again, this is a very critical question again for your audience to understand. When I started whistleblowing, it was around April of 2005. I quit the bank in October of 2005. The whistleblowing law did not commence or pass until December 2006. So I had started my whistleblowing internally at the bank, resigned from my post at the bank, went to the board of directors long before the law was ever passed. So quite frankly, I, I sacrificed my career, my finances, my reputation, my life. All of this because this was the right thing to do. And this is the story that your audience should really understand. Yes, the money's great, but it wasn't about the money because I didn't even know that law existed. And it didn't because it wasn't in place yet. That's very, very important. Second, I want to do the right thing. I worked, I was making a lot of money. I could have kept doing the same thing, but I said, no, I want to expose this. And that's exactly what I did. I exposed it. I did the right thing versus the wrong thing. Now, some people will criticize me and say, oh, you got paid a lot of money and this and that, or you were a part of the problem. Well, no one else did anything. And there was 140 banks operating for decades. Nobody did anything. The U.S. government didn't do anything. But yet when you bring it to them, they attack the messenger who brings it to them. So you can see this is why the story is so powerful. And it shows how it's sort of a David and Goliath approach, if you will in which we can have the power and hopefully I'm motivated someone in your audience or many people in your audience to say, Hey, this guy, he had the courage. You know, some people are shy or they, they, they're married or they have kids. They don't want to be bullied or lose their job or be harassed, intimidated, all of these things. And that's exactly what we're doing is trying to help people understand the complexities of whistleblowing, not just in America, worldwide. I was based in Switzerland and this involved America, but, it's important that we all look and try and make our society a better place to live. Whether it's an oil company dumping oil in the river, whether it's teachers slapping little kids um, illegally, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical companies selling us drugs that don't work or kill us or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Diesel gate with Volkswagen. I mean, there's a perfect example in Europe and there's many, many others, but yeah, absolutely. That's it. And, um, um, could we, um, could, 
could could we say that uh, maybe you know if you continued your career and you know continue turning a blind eye you still would have lived a, a very comfortable life the life of a millionaire jet setting private jets caviar and all of that because after all you were a highly paid banker and uh, it um it, uh, it it wasn't that uh, it, it, your lifestyle didn't change that dramatically actually after the whistle blowing but could uh, could uh, could we say how much money the united states government recovered after the whistleblower well it, it it's still it's still coming in let's put it that way over a decade later um uh, several years ago the amount was around uh, 25 billion dollars now that's not just the fine of the banks and they find 100 swiss banks 100 swiss banks were fined and you can google this it's all out there it's all noted IRS and the DOJ never mentioned my name, but it's because of me that all these banks were fined. A hundred Swiss banks. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we had 19,000 clients and $20 billion at UBS of American clients. So these clients had to come in and pay around 30% of their account balance over a 10-year period, meaning over a 10-year window, they looked at the highest level of their account and they hit that amount times 30%. Roughly speaking, that's how the formula worked. Whether the account was 10 and went down to seven, they don't care. They go for the 10 million, 30%, 3 million, next client, and so on and so forth. So the IRS, a week after I published my book in America in 2016, announced that over 100,000 Americans became tax compliant. Now, we had 19,000 UBS. That meant another 81,000 Americans came in. But what's very important about this is very simple, is that money then leaves Swiss banks and comes back to the American bank. It gets invested and it gets taxed through perpetuity. So the numbers we're speaking are exponentially large, many, many billions and billions and billions on top of this. So I effectively transformed a trillion dollar industry to the benefit of the taxpayers and the government. Yeah, and also there's the money that never even got transferred out of the United States because the Swiss laws were changed. So it wasn't that easy to to launder or to evade tax in Switzerland as a, as a consequence of the whistleblowing. So there's the money that the Americans kept without even having to return because it never went anywhere. Well, that's... That's another point. And, and there's many, many other things. Tax treaties were done. Senate hearings were held. The entire executive management staff at UBS was fired. Clients left. Colleagues left. Um, there was a, um, a, what do you call it? There's a um, this amnesty. There was three amnesties put in place. They've never had three amnesty programs. There were too many people. They couldn't indict 100,000 people. They'd be in the courts forever. So what they did was they tried to make it simple and say, just come in and pay your 30%. You'll keep you anonymous and move on, which I don't generally agree with, but there are some other things there as well. Mm -hmm. So why is it that one person has to step forward to change a decades-long, trillion-dollar illegal business? Whether it's the drug business, whether it's the arms business, whether it's human trafficking, terrorist financing, insider trading, and offshore banking. Why is it the British still have all these offshore centers in the BVIs and Jersey and Guernsey and Gibraltar and all this? Why is it that the Americans and foreign governments, for that matter, haven't held UBS accountable in the court of law? Why did they settle for a settlement? Why? Well, it's an interesting question, certainly. But um, 
you know, the, uh, there's also a cultural difference, I think. And after your case, the Americans actually built upon their uh, whistleblowing regulations and they developed this idea of offering rewards and uh, they're offering record rewards every year now um, and they're discovering a lot of wrongdoing. And uh, arguably, as a result, corporate America is a lot is, is a, a lot more civilized these days than it used to be. And uh, they're doing a lot, uh, a lot more good in the world. But in Europe, there's still a lot of uh, reluctance and skepticism towards whistleblowing. In Europe, the European Commission has kind of tentatively said it might offer rewards to whistleblowers, but it's not clear how that project is going. And the countries are not doing much. And Germany, the biggest economy of all, is, uh, I suppose, uh, quite hostile and the culture in Germany is quite hostile to whistleblowing. Now, why do you think that is? Well, let's put it this way. I've testified, I've helped the German tax authorities, the Greek tax authorities, the Canadian tax authorities, the British tax authorities, and I've testified in the French trial against UBS in Paris. The problem is a lot of these politicians, as you saw in France, uh, had offshore accounts. They're part of the problem. The Greeks don't pay taxes. All the Greek politicians had money in Switzerland. So the very fact that someone in the EU, in Brussels, has not moved their ass to do something is something where I take that personally. So I've been to Brussels. I've lectured in Brussels. I've criticized the politicians there. I've followed them around and harassed them in public. Why? Because they're just, they're just giving lip service to people. If you're a taxpayer in the EU, which you are, why wouldn't you be angry that they're not doing anything to support this. The Americans did it. Not that the Americans do everything right. I'll be the first one to say it. But with this situation, Senator Grassley, who set up this law and enhanced the law from 1986, has been the most successful law in U.S. history. So I tried with the Greeks. I met with Greek prosecutors. I gave them information. It's all there on my website. It's there in my book. I helped the Canadians. They buried it. No trial, no fine, nothing. Canada on a per capita basis, had more money than the U.S. market did at UBS. They had $5 billion, We had $20 billion, but we're $350 million, They're $35 million. So you can see they're 10% of our population. So why nothing? Because as you, if your audience reads my book, the last chapter called The French Connection talks about it. The head of the CRA, Canadian Revenue Authority, sat on the board of UBS Canada. <laughs> the conflicts of interest are endless. The corruption is endless. The incompetence is, is clear. So this is why whistleblowing is so critical to hold corporations and governments accountable. If they don't want to do it, we'll do it for them. Well, exactly. And um, when, you, when you encounter a whistleblower, especially a hard-headed one, um, they don't really give you much of a choice because they go to the media, they go to the authorities, they go to people like Chuck Grassley, and it's worth it's worth just mentioning because again, um, he, uh, Grassley has been along uh, uh, around a long time, and he really is one of one of the individuals who did most of everyone to fight economic crime and money laundering and anonymous shell corporations and so forth. So he really is an enemy of of dirty money around the world. So it's people like that and people like you who are actively fighting uh, against this stuff and uh, you can't really rely on the system and yet 
And yet, um, you said you wanted to to build an NGO um, or some sort of organization helping whistleblowers. Now, I'm not going to say more, but why don't you say something about that? Well, as I said, my book is in eight languages, and the last three languages we're looking to do is Portuguese, Spanish, and Chinese to essentially cover the worldwide language um, barrier, if you will. And in your country, Romania, which um, was... Uh, uh, a country I was very proud to get my book published there uh, because my grandfather was Romanian and he went to America. He went to New York City a hundred years ago, two weeks ago. He landed at Ellis Island. And that to me, I dedicated the book in Romanian to him. And I lectured all across Romania, in Cluj, in Yash, in Costanza, in Bucharest, in Viznetia. I went all over and gave the books away. Why? Because I wanted to educate people and let them know I... I'm here today because of my grandfather, who was Romanian. And I wish you could have seen what I could have done and what I did in the world to change the world. So this, to me, was so powerful to come to Romania. People say, why are you going to Romania? It's such a small country, and what's the connection? Well, I just explained it to you and your audience. But more and more, I come to Romania every year, several times. I have many Romanian friends, as yourself and many others. I like to help the people. I like the food. I like the culture. Anyways, the whole point about this is, is to get in close to the people. I'm not just trying to help people because they say I'm helping them or I'm going to do a business or something like that. We're looking to set up something very, very aggressive in Europe that will help all whistleblowers. There's two problems. The first problem is, is that the laws in, in Europe, as you rightly said, are invisible. They don't exist. You have to protect whistleblowers and you have to compensate whistleblowers. Why? They're the ones taking the risks. And actually law enforcement should embrace whistleblowing because whistleblowing is an extension of law enforcement. They're saving them time, money, anguish, all of this to solve a crime. So why not help them? Why not embrace them? Now, you may not like the fact that they're going to get paid. Well, sorry, that's just the way the world works. How many times have you seen advertisements to get a drug dealer or a terrorist and they say there's a $10 million reward or whatever? What are you doing? You're paying a whistleblower. Exactly, exactly. And there's, uh, there's, this is something that Europeans have, have yet to, to get their heads around. And uh, can I twist your arm and get you to, to put a date or, or a year at least on, on this organization? When is it going to be, uh, to be launched? When... When will you when will you help your first whistleblower? Well, oh, well, I've I've helped many whistleblowers. I have many right now that contact me, and um, I'm more than willing to help any whistleblower that comes forward. Again, there's two types of uh, helping whistleblowers. There's the the monetary side, which is very important because it's expensive if you quit your job or you have a family or you have children or a husband or wife or whatever. Um, the American system, whether it's a U.S. company, a stock-listed company, or a subsidiary, or U.S. dollars involved in foreign corruption or um, 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 illegal waste, fraud, and corruption, you can get paid as any person in the world through the U.S. system anonymously. And we filed many cases for foreigners in this regard. Why? It shows the system works, number one. Number two, it's a quick way to eradicate this waste, fraud, and corruption. And third, it sends a message. If you don't like whistleblowing, don't break the law. It's that simple. But unfortunately, as we know, there's a lot of 
greed and jealousy and corruption and, and crimes that go on. So we need whistleblowing. Whistleblowing is just like a system of um, stabilizing society. Don't you want to live in a good society where people do the right thing? We stop at a red light. We go at a green light. We don't generally speed on the highway. We don't steal from the bank or whatever it might be. Why? Absolutely. Because we're civilized. Absolutely. And uh, before the next question, I, um, uh, I would like to thank our, our advertisers at H5 Strategies in Bucharest again. They're a consulting firm specialized in Eastern Europe, uh, Africa, and Central Asia, and they advise executives and uh, politicians. And now um, it's also worth saying that our advertisers will never get involved in the content. And this podcast and uh, reported at London, the website is always going to be independent of any outside interference. But we thank our advertisers for, for, um, for their support. Well, now, I, would, I, would, yeah. I would counter that with you. And I'd say, I think you and I, to go see your advertisers, they're your advertisers, I'm not trying to get in the middle of this, and say, why don't they have a lecture in Bucharest where you and I do this type in person? Well, that could be something, yeah. Well, we, we, we can certainly follow up. <laughs> right. It could, it could be something interesting. But, hey. um, sorry, I wanted to bring something up again about current, uh, current events now with the war in Russia. We know there's a lot of um, Kremlin linked money in Europe, especially in Europe rather than America or, or, or elsewhere. And um, um, there's a lot of sanctions. So um, a lot of these companies are obviously trying to find ways around the sanctions. So isn't it the case that it's a bit urgent now to stimulate whistleblowing, to encourage whistleblowing and to reward it even, to be able to make sure that the Kremlin isn't able to continue its its campaign of, of conquest and, and war in, in Ukraine and actually obey the sanctions? Well, it's a very good uh, case in point that you raise the war in Ukraine. <laughs> There's no war in Russia, it's in Ukraine, sadly. Um, I think the problem we have here is, again, you have a dictator who has abused his power, who has brainwashed and put propaganda to his people, because I really don't think the Russian people understand fully what's going on. Um, it's, it's similar in some respects to this poor woman in Iran recently who was uh, killed by the police for not wearing a uh, headscarf. Now, I'm not trying to get into religious issues here of countries, but when you, you abuse someone physically and hurt them and kill them in this case, or in Russia's instance, where you invade a very innocent country, which was part of Russia before, and kill innocent women and children, this is unacceptable. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have, how powerful you think you are. We all have to unite to expose and undermine their illegal operations. This is what's a powerful tool to unite and strengthen people to come forward and do the right thing. Now, sadly, the European Union and other governments are weak and they haven't really taken this to the next level. I would cancel every flight from Russia. I would cancel every Russian operation in Europe and say, you want to invade an innocent country? We don't want you part of our society, period. And that's just the way it has to be. And I think that's where the, the governments have to be stronger. But hopefully there'll be other whistleblowers who will come forward to expose this. The problem is, and I would hold these bankers and accountants accountable as well. Why? They use straw men and front men to shield the money so the name isn't there. This is the oldest trick in the book. We know exactly how this is done. And people like me and other bankers who have come forward as whistleblowers can help in that regard. But the governments aren't really doing their job. Again, 
they're failing. So we really need people to come forward and do the right thing. We really need governments to start doing their job. And we need to hold these people accountable who are breaking the law. And that's, in an essence, what we need to do, especially in this Ukraine situation here, which is very, very uh, dangerous, number one. But it's very sad to see innocent women and children suffering. So back to back, back to sort of geopolitics and the, the, the finance of, of geopolitics. London itself is a global financial capital, and um, we've had changes of monarch, changes of prime minister, and all sorts of political turmoil lately. And in between these, there were some economic crime reforms that uh, I think might be delayed, if not sort of uh, shelved for good. Now, even in those reforms, there wasn't any talk of, of providing um, rewards to whistleblowers, and there's still a lot of resistance. Now, what's your message to lawmakers in the UK who govern the city of London about rewards to whistleblowers and about uh, setting up um, some sort of independent body to protect whistleblowers from retaliation? First and foremost, invite me to talk to Parliament in the UK. I'll travel there for free and I'll speak for free. That's the first thing. And if you don't want to invite me, you've got something to hide. Secondly, uh, they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Some of those people in Parliament, I'm, I'm quite sure, have offshore accounts. Tony Blair has been exposed and several others. And they come up with all these excuses why they uh, they have these offshore accounts. Mm-hmm. Interesting, they didn't mention them before they ran for public office, but they mentioned it after they get caught. Third, why is it that the UK, it's, it's not a financial center, it's a money laundering center. The money laundering that's going on in the city of London is, it's, is disgusting. Um, the real estate market, the art market. Why is it today that Sotheby's and Christie's does not expose the, old, the buyer of multi-million dollar pieces of artwork? Why? Why should that be anonymous? That's okay. interesting. Yeah, that's called money laundering. Trust me. I used to go to Christie's and Sotheby's. I saw what went on. It's a joke. So Christie's and Sotheby's. And remember about the price fixing they had back, I don't know, 20 years ago where the U.S. held them accountable and fined them. Christie's and Sotheby's were fined for collusion, price fixing. Okay, but why is it anonymous? It's because it's money laundering. Secondly, why is it that the U.K. promotes all these offshore centers? Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man, Gibraltar. Uh, Bermuda, less so, but still there. Uh, Hong Kong, less so, but it's still there. Um, BVIs and so forth. Why? When they talk this big game about righteousness, sorry to say, it's bullshit. Because this country single-handedly developed this offshore world. Not the Americans. Yeah, of course. I just gave it to you. Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man, Gibraltar, Bermuda, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, BVIs and the Caymans. So what I'm trying to say here is you can't fix the problem unless you really want to fix the problem. And these people don't want to fix it. Why? Because they're benefiting from it. It's like a drug dealer saying, oh, we're going to stop the drug trade. Why would they do that? Unless there was a penalty that was so severe and so harsh. So why don't the foreign banks, why doesn't the Central Bank of Europe now that the UK is out in Brexit, Sanction UK. How about that? Right. Well, how about we try to put a, a slightly more optimistic twist on this and, um, you know, think of people like Stephen Cohn and yourself who made a 
the, you know, the, the, you, you've made a good living out of whistleblowing. And um, Stephen Cohen is helping other whistleblowers get rewards from the American system. Now, why doesn't Europe provide a competing system if, um, if um, there, is, uh, there is an industry to be had, there is an economy to be had around whistleblowing? Is there a business case for whistleblowing? Well, there certainly is. The problem is, is that, you know, law firms are slowly starting to catch on and see that this is a, a very lucrative uh, business to expose wrongdoing and get their, their clients paid and protected. It's very important, the protection as well as payment. But the problem here is they keep reverting back to World War II about how people were double agents or spies or the Vichy government in France and all this kind of stuff. No, enough of that. It's 2022. Can we stop the nonsense? And uh, these are, we're big boys and girls. We have to come up with laws that make society a better place. You've got Russia invading Ukraine. You've got a woman getting killed because she doesn't wear a headscarf in Tehran. You've got Taiwan about to be swallowed by China. Really? And you can't come up with a very simple approach to stop this offshore illegal banking that does terrorist financing, human trafficking, guns, drugs, and so forth. Well, on that note, cherished audience, Brad Birkenfeld, he never holds back. Um, thanks again for joining me. And um, one last shout out to H5 Strategies in Bucharest, uh, a consultancy for executives and politicians around Eastern Europe, Africa and Central Asia. And Brad, uh, I really look forward to some of your next adventures. And thanks very, very much for, for being with us today. It's my pleasure, and I'll make sure I'll get you that document next week when it comes out. Okay.